So we are uh, lesson 24 in our chronological journey through the gospel. And according to Luke, after Jesus chose his 12 disciples, having come down from the mountain with the 12, a great multitude of people came to him. And it was on this occasion that Jesus gave his famed Sermon on the Mount which is mostly covered in Matthew's gospel. Luke touches on it a little bit. But we've already looked at Jesus and his teaching of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And we saw the last week the importance of his followers being salt and light to this world, how our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes or the Pharisees. We might say the religious rulers of Jesus' day. They had based their righteousness on the law and the importance also of our vertical and horizontal relationship, our vertical relationship with God, our horizontal relationship with others. So as his sermon continues, he begins to teach about a righteousness that leads to the perfecting of our hearts toward God and others. And this righteousness is not outward, it's not of the flesh, but it's inward, it's of the heart. The letter of the law, and we're going to see a bit of the letter of the law, and this could be a very hard message for some. In fact, many in the church today, would, many pastors would probably not want to teach this portion of scripture because of the harshness of the letter of the law but Jesus was trying to point out that there is harshness in the letter of the law and the word of God tells us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God so as he continues this sermon he speaks about the letter of the law which the second table of the law said you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery um, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. That wasn't in the Ten Commandments, but it's going to be talked about by Jesus. You shall not swear falsely. An eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth. You shall love your neighbor. All these things appear in the Mosaic Law, although not everything that I just mentioned is part of the Ten Commandments, but the heart of it is there. While most of the Jews tried to live to the letter of the law, for many of them it was merely outward works without an inward change in their hearts. And Jesus called his followers, he calls us to live by the high standard of his word in order that God's law would penetrate our hearts, penetrate our inward being, penetrate our souls. So here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 48, Jesus teaches his followers that we are to love, to bless, to do good, and to pray. That's the title of our sermon today, Love, Bless, Do Good, and Pray. And we're going to see in three points, in verses 27 through 32, we're going to look at an issue of the heart, 33 through 43, turning the other cheek, and 42. Well, I have that off just a little bit, but 43 through 48, that's what my notes say. But I'm repeating a verse, so that can't be right. We'll figure it out as I go through it. Uh, love versus hatred. And so an issue of the heart. We begin in verses 27 through 32. I'll go ahead and read the context 
for us Matthew chapter 5, picking up in verse 27. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it off from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Some pretty hard words spoken there by the Lord, but we begin with the issue of law, the law, what the law says, and Jesus talking about the lust of the hearts here. In verses 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. This comes from the table of the law, from the Ten Commandments, uh, the seventh commandment, Exodus 20:14, you shall not commit adultery, is repeated in Deuteronomy 5:18, and Deuteronomy is really a Hebrew word that means the second law. They're just a repeating of the laws that God gave to the first generation that came out of Egypt and to the second generation that was about to enter into the promised land. Moses went and repeated a lot of the things that he had taught their parents, their parents having died in the wilderness. He does a repeating of the law, so it's found again in Deuteronomy 5.18. Leviticus 20.10 will get a little of these details in some of the other books of the Pentateuch, where it says, Leviticus 20.10, this is the law, a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. That's the letter of the law. Under the Mosaic law, uh, the penalty of adultery was death. But Jesus talks about lust. And it is a compound Greek word that when you... Uh, epi is the first part of that word. It means end. And so in the mind is the compound Greek word that's given to us there. In the mind. And so to have an affection for, directed towards something, to lust, desire after something. And that could be either in a good or a bad sense. I happened to stop by a friend's uh a friend on Friday stopped by to say hello. He just got uh, a 2020 race car delivered to him. Uh, just showed up. He hadn't even test drove it yet. And then his wife showed up. And they started talking about, I think his wife might have mentioned, you've been lusting after this. Now it's yours. And he goes, well, from my understanding, I believe lusting in the heart only refers to women. And both me and the wife said, oh, no, 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 no. Anything that you lust after in your heart, whatever you put before God and before others, that's the lust of the heart. So in the mind, the Greek word, and it could be in a good or bad sense, it's used, this Greek word, in a good sense. Jesus, in Luke 22:15. 15, 
with fervent desire. It's the same Greek word that's found there uh, to lust after. With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before our suffer. That's in a good sense. He had this great desire, it was in his mind, this great desire to have this final meal with his disciples. In the evil sense, 1 Corinthians 10, 6, now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness, they became an example for us. Don't be like them. This is where they failed. So Jesus took the letter of the law. He made it an issue of the heart, actually an issue of the soul, according to Solomon. And if we do connect lusting with women, Solomon having 700 wives and 300 concubines, he'd probably know a little bit about lusting the heart after a woman. But he wrote this, which is amazing. And sometimes uh, people can say the right things, and they don't actually live up to the things that they think, say. Of course, we know that Proverbs were, and the words in Proverbs being inspired by God himself and his spirit. But Proverbs 6, 32 through 35, he says, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul, wounds and dishonored. He will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away, for jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not be spared on the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, talking about the husband. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. So basically saying that someone who takes another man's wife, that husband will not be appeased. He will not forgive in the day of vengeance, that man will not be spared. So recompense is required for all sin. If we're not held accountable on this earth, one day we'll stand before God. And yet there is something about sin that is more grievous, some sins more grievous than others. According to Solomon, even though the man may commit adultery and even offer payment to the other man, it will not satisfy even if all forgives him, the husband and the woman that were adultery in the case of adultery had been committed, they still will have to stand before God on the day of judgment. God has an intent for marriage in Hebrews 13:4 that says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So even if we try to justify here on this earth positions that we might have, we still have to deal with God. Here's the thing. Even when we fail, even the most grievous of sins, God has given us his law to guide us, to guard our hearts, to be a protector over our lives. But more so, he has given his son to pay the penalty of our sins, that if we come to him, seek forgiveness, as it says in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. God cleanses us from all sin. So even in the most grievous of sins, 
The Lord Jesus Christ can bring healing to those relationships. He goes on, and I've already read this in verses 29 through 30, to talk about the right eye sinning and the right hand sinning. That we've already read this. If your right hand, right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it out, saying it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish then your whole body be cast into hell. And he said the same thing about the right hand. If it causes you to sin, uh, cut it off, cast it away from you. Again, repeating that it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Yet those who desire to live by the letter of the law, basically they would have to keep dismembering parts of their body. If you want to live by the letter of the law, you pluck out your right eye. The problem is you still have a left eye. You can still sin, sin. And if seeing has caused you to sin, then you have to remove both eyes. If you take off a right hand, you still have a left hand. And if your hand caused you to sin, you still have the left hand to deal with. We are incapable of living up to the letter of the law. And that's really what Jesus is bringing home. Your righteousness, he would say prior to this, we looked at this last week in this passage, just prior to this teaching, last week we learned that if you want to be righteous before God, it had to exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. In the Jewish mind, they were the men who were blessed by God, but they only lived merely outwardly by the letter of the law. They did not allow the law to work change in their hearts. So that inwardly they were blind to the truth of God's word. In Galatians 3, verses 23 through 25, the word of God tells us, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith, which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. God's law resulting in death was something that Paul explained to the Corinthian believers. For Paul's ministry team came to them in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. He said, they came to them as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So those who desire to live by the letter of the law, and this, I believe, ties back to the Lord Jesus saying, if your righteousness, if you want to be righteous before my Father, it needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, as found in Matthew 5, verse 20. And he goes on to there, speaking about murder, and even having the thought, the evil thought, not physically committing the act of murder, verses 21, beginning there, but even thinking about it, causing calling your brother a, a fool, saying that you are in danger of the judgment. So he's taking the literal words of the law and explaining that these are issues of the heart. Those who desire to live after the law will discover that the law is a harsh schoolmaster. So verses 31 and 32, he's still on this topic of divorce and adultery he says furthermore it has been said so he goes back to the law whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce but i say to you that he 
that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So what the law states, that's found in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, she departs from his house, goes, becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband detests her, so she's married again, and the new husband doesn't like her, and he writes a certificate of divorce, puts her, put it in her hand, sends her out of the house. If the first husband, the latter husband dies, the first husband then, it gets real complicated here, in Moses' explanation, the first husband takes her back. So Moses writes, Then the former husband who divorced her takes her back to be his wife after she's been defiled, been married to another. That is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin in this land, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. So it gets very complicated. Jesus in another passage in the gospel says the reason Moses gave permission for the Jews to have divorce was because of the hardness of their hearts. So they brought it into what did Moses mean when he said the husband found some uncleanness in her. And there was a debate in Jesus's day between Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel of what that some uncleanness meant. Rabbi Shammai said that divorce was allowable if the wife had committed some type of immorality like adultery, while Rabbi Hillel, divorce could be for any reason, whatever the reason the husband might think. But Jesus taught more than the legal reason for divorce. Jesus, he talks about the hardness of the heart. Moses wrote this precept about divorce and Jesus said in Mark 10, 6 through 9, from the beginning God of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus taught the true intent of the father that a man and woman should remain together. And so this issue of divorce, it continues to be highly debated even in the church today. And yet for those who find themselves in troubled marriages, I've seen God work miracles even in it's seemingly the most hopeless of situations. Those miracles can take place when a husband and a wife wholly give their hearts over to Jesus, first as individuals, then as a couple. God can also work miracles in the lives of those who have already been divorced, just as God has covered the sin through his, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, so too can he, healing of the wounds of divorce be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ makes us whole. So whether talking about, and if we take it back to verses 1 through 26, that of murder, murder versus hatred, or the act of adultery in verses 27 through 32. Jesus is really teaching about the issues of the heart. 
You want to live by the letter of the law. The law is a harsh schoolmaster. James said in James 1, 13 through 15, no one can say that when they are tempted, they are tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each one of us is tempted when he is drawn away with his own desires enticed. Then when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. But thankfully, Jesus, at his first coming, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves through the offering of his body upon the cross, where he paid the price of our sins, that those who would cry out to him in life-saving faith, that our sins then would be forgiven, that he would give us new hearts, he would give us new spirits. And it's a promise from Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out that heart of stone of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. C.S. Lewis once said, The Christian does not think and God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. And the Christian does not think that God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. And it's only through Jesus Christ that our sins can be truly forgiven. So whatever the issue might be of the heart, Jesus came to pay the price to cover those things which we could not, could never uh, live up to the high standard of God's word. The law is a harsh schoolmaster. If you want to live by the letter of the law, you'd have to start dismembering your body. And even if you got down to a stump, <laughs> it still would not be sufficient. You couldn't stand before God, but it still would not be sufficient to stand before the holy and righteous God who created us. And then he talks about our relationship with others and the turning the other cheek. And this can be a very difficult thing. It's found in verses 33 through 34. And he begins in verses 33 through 37 that we are to let our words stand. Verses 33... Let me check something real quick in my notes. My notes are looking bad to me. So I want to see and make sure that I'm looking at what I actually want to look at. I am. So whatever reason, it's amazing. I did write this sermon, by the way. <laughs> but I skipped from uh, verses 33 to 37. I just want to make sure that I meant to do that. And I didn't mean to do that. So he said, again, you have heard it said of those of old, do not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But let your yes be yes, verse 37, your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So I'll get in verses, uh, I'll pick up in verse 34 in a moment. Notice it says, 
whoever swears falsely, performing oaths, that these things are directed according to the law. They're directed not only toward others, but to God. Leviticus 19:12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. We're not to use the name of God in vain. It's one of the commandments. Numbers 32, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, and so this could be any oath to anyone, he binds himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. To swear falsely or not to perform an oath finds us guilty if we fail in these areas. And James says in James 2.10, that if you strive to keep all of the law but break one point of the law, that man is guilty of it all. And so Jesus, in God's law, God's standard of the law, he's not looking for, well, almost. I, I almost kept all of the law. The law is the law, and the law is a harsh schoolmaster. And so Jesus says, picking up again in verses 34 down through 37, I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of the great king. I added too many greats in there. It is the city of the great king, nor do you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever more than these is from the evil one. We are not to allow ourselves to be entangled in oaths. Rather, we're to be people of our word. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. I was thinking about this. I don't know why. I took my grandson's disc golfing on a not a great course over in Lindenhurst because several of the holes um, are right next to a fence and if you overthrow the fence you're in somebody's backyard and to get your disc back and retrieve it and my grandsons at that time seemed to like to throw over the fence you had to some people were very nice about it and they would come out and give you the disc Uh, one person just left an opening there for people to come in and get the disc But one guy came out and he was threatening to call the cops on us. And I told him that, not that a disc would never go in his yard again. And I I would say if I lived in that, I would hate it too. Disc always coming into the yard. It would be a pain. In my head, I was thinking, don't put your house on a golf course. It's gonna get pinged up by golf balls. Or by disc. But so I told him it won't happen again. If a disc ever goes in, we'll come around the front and we'll ask for the disc. But then he said, he started threatening about the cops. And I was starting to get angry. Why? Because I told him it won't happen again. Not for me. I let my word stand. But he didn't understand that. And he was probably so fed up with disc coming in this backyard that we happened to be just the, I don't know, maybe it happened several times that day already. 
We need to let our yes be yes, our no, no. Let our words stand in this world. I was at a pre-trial deposition. They never let me go to trial. It was uh, my boss. Somebody got injured on the job uh, for the company that I work for. And uh, I was the foreman, so my boss wasn't around. So I was the foreman. They brought me down to Chicago to kind of do the pre-trial stuff for the deposition where we were being sued by an individual from another company because he got wounded by a piece of our equipment. And the lawyer from the uh, plaintiff was uh, asking me questions. And finally, I, I stopped and I said, look, you've asked that question three times. You just change the words every time of how you're asking it. The answer is no. And I, I did say it pretty strongly. And he looked at the lawyer and said, we're done here. And they never, he didn't want to get me on this. He couldn't trip me up. I knew what he was doing. He was just rewording. It's like going to vote at the elections for some referendum where the referendum, if you would read it honestly as an honest person and just look at it, you would think voting yes on this means I don't want this to happen. But they so word it that voting yes on this means it will happen and I don't want it to happen. So I need to vote no. And it gets so confusing sometimes to where the politicians so word things, you think, what does yes, what does no mean? We need to be clear on these things. James, again, James 5, 12. Above all, my brother, and do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Just keep it simple. Be people of the word. And be people of your word. So don't use phrases like, well, may lightning strike me. (laughs) It might. If I'm not telling the truth or I swear on my mother's grave. I don't know why I want to sound like a southerner when I say that. A person who says such things, they're trying to convince others of their truthfulness. When as followers of the Lord, we should be those who desire to keep God's word, but also keep our word to others. Keep it simple. And if you're on a disc golf course and the disc goes over somebody's fence and the homeowner of that yard complains and you say, "Okay, I won't do it again. For me, that should be the end of it because I gave the man my word. Then he started threatening the cops and I was ready, ready to I didn't. My grandsons were there. It may have been different, boys, if you hadn't been there. (laughs) This preacher can get riled sometimes. Be people of our word. It would be a horrible headline for the newspaper, though. Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa arrested in dispute over a disc golf course. It would be a silly argument to have. Sometimes it's worth walking away, and we did walk away. We're not only to be followers of God's word, but we are to be people who strive to keep our word to others. So go the extra mile. Verses 38 through 42. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil port." 
person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you to take away your tunic, you shall give him your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks. And from him who wants to borrow, do not turn him away. So the letter of the law, the letter of the law in Exodus 21, 23 through 25 says this. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's the letter of the law. God had given Israel these laws to keep them from becoming like the lawless nations that were around them. Therefore, their judgments were not to be disproportionate to the crime committed. That's why the letter of the law said an eye for an eye. It wasn't an eye for a life or a hand for a life. I mean, this would be bad enough, right? You poke out somebody's eye and your eye gets poked out. You wouldn't want that, but it might really cause people to think twice about poking out somebody's eye. If in our nation today, somebody broke into a business, stole even $10 worth of stuff, and they were sent to jail, now they have this kind of get out of jail free card as long as it's under $1,000. What is that? If they actually went to jail, and did you see this? Maybe it was last week, but this week I saw it. A man in New York that was just released and then walked up behind another man and just slugged him from behind, knocked him out, actually um, cracked his skull, and he had just got released from jail. And the guy is a repeat offender back from the 90s, why are they letting him out? If punishment was meted out in our justice system, well, laws are there for a reason. So what the law stated, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, was that their judgments were not to be disproportionate to the crime committed, but it was not saying don't judge. The Mosaic law even taught to go an extra mile well, Jesus threw that in because that was Roman law. So the Romans could tell the Jews, a Roman soldier, any Roman soldier could go up to any one of an occupied territory and say, you have to carry my gear for one mile. And in, all throughout Israel, they had mile markers that they would know where a mile is. Jesus said, if that happens to you, go two miles. I can tell you and guarantee you that the second mile, that soldier would think, what is wrong with this person? He already did what I told him and what he had to do, but why is he continuing to carry my back? Think about the testimony that that would be. The Mosaic law was that of, to the letter of the law, that which outward works. And people who strive to live by the letter of the law and allowed no inward working of the heart, no inward change of the heart, we are, as followers of Christ, to live by a higher standard. We're to allow the Word of God to affect our very hearts. And when addressing punishment for those who are guilty, we must not forget that we, too, have been sinners saved by grace. 
Remember Jesus when the woman who was caught in adultery in John 8, 7, he says, so when they continue to ask him, and they brought this woman caught in adultery, we already read about that earlier. The letter of the law stated that both the man and woman should be put to death. They didn't bring the man. They only brought one side of the argument. We'll get to that in John 8. But they weren't even living up to the letter of the law. They asked Jesus, what, this is what the law says. What's the law say? Jesus responded, he is without sin. Let him cast the first stone. None of us are without sin. We must never forget this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, this is a man who knew persecution. He was hung one month, hung by the Germans, one month before the Germans surrendered. <laughs> he almost made it. His words still continued to teach the church to this day. He said, bless them that persecute you. This is in The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bless them who persecute you. If our enemy cannot put up with us any longer and takes us, takes to cursing us, our immediate reaction must be to lift up our hands and bless them. If enemies are the blessed of the Lord, their curse can do us no harm. May their poverty be enriched with all the riches of God, with blessings of him whom they seek to oppose in vain. We are ready to endure the curses so long as they redound to their blessing. This is a man who wrote about blessing those who curse you, but he was, as a pastor, he was part of the resistance in Germany, and he fought against the things that he saw going on in Germany and how most of the church of Germany allowed it to happen. He fought against these things. So there's a balance of doing what's right. When we see our nation is going down a track that goes against the word of God and the truth of God's word, we need to learn to take a stand in this world. And I, 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 I think about this a lot, especially over the last two or three years, because um, holding true to God's word is not very popular in our world today. But we are, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should allow Jesus and his word to impact every aspect of our lives. We are to take those stands. And in the process of that, we're to learn to bless those who curse us and to even pray for them, for God's blessing to be upon them. And so that of love and hatred, we close out in verses 43 through 48 and verses 43 through 45 the sons and daughters of God, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. So this is what the law states. And it's not that Jesus got this wrong. I believe that what Jesus quoted to them, you have heard it said from old, 
that Israel got it wrong. Israel had actually already added to this. Here's what the law stated. Leviticus 19:18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Apparently, Israeli tradition added, you shall hate your enemies. That's what Jesus read to them. This is what you've heard. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. That's not what the law stated. The law said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Didn't talk anything about the enemies there. The motto, though, of the sin-fallen world, do unto others what they have done to you. Man, you get me, I'm going to get back. I'm not just going to get even, I'm going to make it worse for you. And because of our sinful nature, it's easy for us to fall into this trap. It's easy for us to hate our enemies, to curse our adversaries, to hate those who hate us, to spitefully use and to persecute others. But Jesus taught us in Matthew 7:12, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophet. Whatever you want others to do to you, whatever you want them to do, not what they do, but you would like them to do to you. This is what we are to do. This is the law and the prophets. Jesus commands his followers to live opposite to the inclinations of their heart. So the love, the title of this message, love, bless, do good and pray, And that's what Jesus said we are to do in this section. We are first to love, agapeo, the Greek word. I I understand this Greek word as a giving love that expects nothing in return. Jesus said in John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. We're not only to love, we are to bless. A Greek word that speaks about speaking well of others, to give praise, to give thanksgiving to others. It can mean to pray a blessing for someone, even those who have pronounced a curse, much like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. We bless, we pray for our enemies. Paul said in Romans 12:14, "Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse." So the inclination of our hearts is to do totally opposite what the word tells us. We are to well, according to the word, we're to love, we're to bless and we're to do good. So this is two words, it's two words for us in the English, it's two words in the Greek as well. Uh, two words put together that represent the doing good, it means to have that sense of doing what is right, what is fair, what is honorable. And it's easy for us to do good for those that we love. It's easy for us to do good for those who do good things for us. But it's hard to do good for others, for those who especially do evil against you or even hate you. But as believers, we're not to respond evil with evil, but respond with good. Hebrews 13:16 says... But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And we're to pray. We're to love, we're to bless, we're to do good, and we are to pray. We're to pray. And in the Greek word, it always speaks about praying to God. 
Prayer is such an important topic in the Bible. It's mentioned in its various forms. Just the word prayer in its various forms. 379 times in the Old and New Testament. In the New Testament, 159 times. Pastor Chuck said of prayer, the founding pastor of the Calvary Chapel movement, Pastor Chuck said, prayer is the most important activity a born-again Christian can perform. It should head your list of priorities, for certainly the world around us desperately needs prayer. Prayer will open the door for God to do glorious work in these last days. Prayer will stem the tide of evil. We don't like the direction that we see our world is going. How much have we prayed about it? Prayer will stem the tide of evil. We should be committing prayer and the work of God in our world today that he would turn the tide. I, in my prayers, praying that Christ would send revival upon this land. We need a change of course. Our world is heading in a course, a direction that is away from God. We need the Lord to do a work that people would turn their hearts back toward the Lord. And although we live in the sin-fallen world, God continually, he provides. He causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He causes it to rain on the evil and the good. In Galatians 5, 13 and 14, it says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, not only to use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You want to live according to the letter of the law? Love your neighbor as yourself. So if you desire to be perfect, I put this point in the old King James, be ye perfect. I just like how it sounds. Be ye perfect. Verses 46 through 48, it closes out our chapter today. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. For you shall be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. My head was thinking as I was reading that, he used the tax collectors twice because in the Jewish mind, you have to think of the Jewish mind in their circumstances back then. The tax collectors in their society of that day, more often than not, were Jewish men who were collecting taxes for the Roman government. Therefore, they were despised and hated as traitors in their society. So as I'm reading that, I'm thinking of some 87,000 new IRS agents that they're doubling the tax collectors. And we're thinking, whatever you're thinking, however you want to word that. I'm thinking, I've been audited twice in my life, Lily and I. It's always been to, always been because, according to the IRS, we give too much money to the church. And they can't figure it out. You don't make this much money to give this much money away. They always review our tithe. And that's the only reason I've ever been brought in. I'm thinking there's going to be a higher chance that it's going to happen again for this boy 
I'm just assuming that it will happen. So keep this in mind. Do not even the tax collectors do the same. 87,000 more tax collectors coming your way. While it is true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, once forgiven, all believers should conduct themselves by the example of God's love toward others. Jesus taught that our recompense should not be set on earthly things, but on our future heavenly rewards. He taught us that love should be the distinct characteristic of our lives, whether we show love to our friends, our family members, or strangers, we are to have the characteristics of Christ because anyone can show love or do good to those who love them or those who do good to them. But it's when you show those characteristics that go against the characteristics of the world, when you do good to those who have spoken evil against you, when you do good to others who are not part of your nation or part of your thinking or group that you're part of, we show ourselves to be sons and daughters of God. So if you want to be perfect, then we are to guide ourselves by the Word of God, allowing the Spirit of God to penetrate our hearts. Only Christ can bring about such perfection in our lives. And we're not going to be perfect. We know that we're going to fail. But God demonstrates his love toward the whole world, those who believe in him and those who do not. Jesus gave two examples. He causes the sun to rise every day. It's happened since the world was created. The sun has risen and it has set every single day since the first day when God, it was actually on the fourth day where he created the sun and the moon and the stars. But on the first day, he said, let there be light. On the fourth day, he created the sun, moon, and stars, I believe, in my head. That wasn't in my notes. He causes the sun to rise. We should, in Acts 14, 17, Paul said the same thing and to those in Lystra. He does not leave himself without witness in that he did good. God did good. He gives rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our heart with food, food and gladness. God has always done good to this earth. He will continue to do so. Don't get caught up in these conspiracy theories that in 12 years we're all going to die and there's not going to be any earth left if we don't drastically change the things that we are doing. Because since 1970, it has been kind of an every 12 years we're all going to die. And if we don't change things, and this is practically my whole lifetime, we have been on the edge of destruction since I've been living on this earth it's probably true in one sense, but it's never came about. We have not repeated the ice age. We didn't have global warming, so much so that they had to change global warming to climate change. And now whether it's cold or hot, they just have the climate change initiative out there and they're forcing this now. But it's God who's watching over this earth we need to trust in the Lord God. We're to do what's right. We're to conduct ourselves in the best way that we can. We shouldn't take advantage of this world that the Lord has given us. But more so, we should be concerned about the lives of others. 
Augustine, one of the great saints of old, uh, born in 354 A.D. and died in 430 A.D., he said, What does love look like? It is the hands to help others. It is the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It is the eyes to see misery and want. It is the ears to hear the sighs and the sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. Just think about those words. What does love look like? It is the hands to help others. Often, we may not allow allow our hands to help others. It is the feet to hasten to the poor and the needy. Often, we may turn our feet and walk the other way. It is the eyes to see misery and want. Sometimes we allow our eyes to turn away. It is the ears to hear the sighs and the sorrows of men. Being present when people are in their greatest hours of need. Augustine said that is what love looks like. And as sons and daughters of God, we are to love one another with the love of Christ. So most of the Jews tried to follow God's law to the letter, but they did not allow it to make an inward change in their heart. According to Jesus, as believers, we are to love, we are to bless, we are to do good, we are to pray as we go through this life. And thankfully, the Spirit of God comes alongside us to help us to do these things, to improve our walk and relationship with God and others, that God might be glorified. And it's my hope that you've realized that Jesus is the Savior of the world and has that you have received that salvation. That's where it begins. If you try to do it without Jesus, then you're merely living, attempting to live by the letter of the law, just like the scribes and Pharisees tried to do. We cannot do it without Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, it can be a very tough portion of scripture talking about living up to the letter of the law, something that we honestly, in many ways, we have failed, each one of us. But Lord, we thank you that, Father God, you sent your only begotten son, Lord Jesus, that you came to be an offering for our sin, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That, Lord, for those of us who cry out to you in life-saving faith, that we find forgiveness of sin, and we are gifted with the Holy Spirit, that you help us to grow and learn how to, we ought to walk and to please God. Lord, we are not perfect, nor could we ever be in our own flesh. But, Lord, you sent your Son to pay the price of our sin, that we might be called the sons and daughters of God. So help us, Lord, that we would love, bless, and do good, and pray for those, Lord. Not just those that we love, but, Lord, all those that we come across in this world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.